you probably haven't thought of a retreat as being paradise, have you? And yet, the facts are, the retreat is a place where you come and get fed and totally taken care of, and nobody expects anything of you. And you don't have to go anywhere. And most blessed of all, you don't have to speak to anybody. (laughs) The only thing is that you bring yourself. (laughs) Paradise is like that. (laughs) I have been a seeker of paradise for many, many years. <laughs> it's led me into some strange places. I, I sought paradise for a year on Kauai, the island, and uh, that was about it. I lasted a year because there I was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm his apprentice. And then after that, I, I uh, before or after, I sought paradise with a spiritual master in a beautiful place in India. And uh, the moment that I remember most vividly is being in his paradisical rose garden, sitting at his feet, bearing my tender heart in confession to him of my unworthiness. Looking up, and he had those reflecting sunglasses on. (laughs) All I could see was my face. (laughs) Paradise. My latest venture is... (laughs) For the past eight years, I I have found another paradise in Mexico, Todos Santos. And uh, I'm there because it's the end of the line. (laughs) I don't have any else, nowhere else to look. And it's interesting because there's a large expatriate community there seeking paradise and a new life, a fresh start, and a chance to reinvent themselves. A lot of us accumulated there in the last few years. It's quite an amazing thing to watch. And everybody, one by one, discovers that he or she, you know what, (laughs) brought that, the mind. And so as a Dharma teacher there, I have the, the uh, unique uh, position of watching the people come in and be all excited about being in paradise. And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful place. And uh, slowly beginning to get it that they brought their minds with them. And uh, anxiety soon sh- shuts in, sets in. Paradise.
So this is the last night of the retreat. And whether or not you found it to be paradise, it's probably more like what I've been describing. You brought yourself, and that's who you met. We're about to be cast out into the world. And as difficult as it may have been, we are about to leave the nest, this paradise, which actually it's pretty close. It's pretty close to encounter the conditioned world manifest. So maybe we ought to examine this this phenomenon of paradise a little bit more closely and see what we could learn from the whole thing. I've been very interested in the last few months in rediscovering the myth of the fall from the Garden of Eden. The fall from the Garden. I grew up a confirmed Lutheran, and I was well aware as a young child of the the story of the fall. It was kind of drummed into me. And it always horrified me. You know, what a terrible story of being cursed and thrown out of the garden and having to work and slave and be in pain. So I've been examining the literature recently, and I want to run through it a little bit with you uh, in order to make a point, of course, about it. This has nothing to do with religion, by the way. (laughs) You don't believe that. This is from uh, a new international version of Genesis 3. Okay, I'm starting about in the middle. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now you remember that the fruit of the tree was from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was another tree, the tree of life, but the one that was forbidden was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Self-consciousness. The discovery of nakedness and the need to cover oneself. Isn't it a self-consciousness? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me... She gave me some fruit from that tree, and I ate it. (laughs) You get the implication. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. (laughs) This is no light fairy tale. (laughs) To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. in the book. (laughs) To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he ple- I don't know what happened to the woman. He, he, <laughs> he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Life everlasting is forbidden. Now that's very interesting to me, that myth, you see, because it's the creation myth of the Judeo-Christian tradition, I'm not sure if it is existing in other traditions, to tell you the truth. I think it is. Yes, I think it's universal. It's the, the, the myth of the beginning for all of us. And when I read that, when I heard that as a child, it was truly terrifying. And it's fascinated me ever since. And I've been thinking about it and meditating on it quite a lot. 
And I'm convinced that this is metaphor and beautiful, beautiful. The tree of the garden in the Garden of Eden of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the beginning of duality, good and evil. And therefore, it's the beginning of thought. And because you've eaten of the tree, you're going to think for the rest of your life. And leave paradise. The beginning of thought and the beginning of duality. Now that has a lot of implications for us leaving the retreat, actually. The symbology of leaving this place of nourishment and self-inspection. Because you've encountered your thinking here, up close. And you've learned a lot about it. You've seen how it continuous it is. Whatever it is that's producing thought in here is a constant flowing fountain of images and concepts, thinking about the future, the past, memory, fantasy. It's a constant flowing. And you've encountered that. And there is no way to stop it. And in addition to that, it's always referring to you. All this thinking that goes on is self-referential, making you in the center of the universe, actually, in thought. Now remember, the Buddha's teaching was that we've all been born under a veil of ignorance. And the ignorance has to do with being the center of the universe in our own mind, separate from everything else. The other thing about thinking is that it is the vehicle of the me, the ego self. So the fall from the garden was the beginning of separation, the life of the separate ego self. It was the beginning of loneliness. It was the beginning of alienation and the need to work to survive in separateness. The other thing about thinking is that being the, the, the vehicle of the separate self, the me, it is also adversarial to reality. It's rarely in the thoughts that come through the mind are rarely satisfied thoughts, sometimes, but rarely. Usually they're uh, critical thoughts. And usually, guess who they're critical of? You. You've been encountering it all week. You need to do something. You need to dress it up or paint it over, make it better. It's not okay the way it is. It's never all right. That lack of satisfaction, the Buddha called accurately dukkha, suffering. It's never 
just right. Something lacking all the time. So, in leaving this garden of Eden, this protected place, what should be said to us? What should I say? What should we think about? What should we know about as we go out into the world? Well, let's use the metaphor. You've been here learning a lot about the, the, the life of the mind and the body, how it works. You've seen how it's relentlessly, ongoingly productive and manifesting. It is. Anna described the, the movement of samsara. And how we are all somehow fixed in that movement. Yeah. And we've also been studying the teachings in the, in while we've been doing this practice. The teachings being very explicitly the suffering is caused by clinging in a situation where there's nothing to cling to, and ultimately by the separation from the in the from uh, the everything by the fall, the suffering is in that separate self, the longing for union. So the path that we have been practicing on is really a response to the myth of the fall from the garden. The path promises liberation. The goal is to be free, to be liberated from this dilemma of being caught in thought. Remember I, I, I said Trungpa repeated this so many times, thinking is the ego's army, foot soldiers, emotions, the ego's generals. That fountain of rising constantly mental phenomena happens automatically, but the me, the one who ate of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, identifies with that process as belonging to him or herself, clings to that. And we all are immersed in that situation, even more than we can suspect. Can, even more than we can possibly know in the moment. It's, it's a, an identification that's cellular, you know. Adyashanti, a, a young non-dual teacher, a very exciting teacher, 
The human condition is characterized by a compulsive and obsessive personal relationship to thought. At its best, thought is a symbolic representation of reality. At its worst, thought takes the place of reality. And it does that in each of our lives. Our thoughts describe and interpret both the external world and our internal experiences. To conceive of a life lived any other way is incomprehensible to most people. In fact, when he speaks of awakening, he uses the word most frequently unimaginable. Awakening to us is unimaginable. We can know nothing about it, of course, because there's no one there at that point to know anything. Thought tells us who we are, what we believe, what is right and wrong, what we should feel, what is true and what is false, and how we fit into this event called life. We literally create ourselves in our lives out of thought. Further, we associate the end of thought with sleep, unconsciousness, or death. It's true. It is this very personal relationship with thought that is the cause of all the fear, ignorance, and suffering which characterizes the human condition and which destroys the manifestation of true love in this life. Destroys love manifestation in this life. That's very powerful, you see. What it means to me is that it behooves us as we leave the garden to be very aware of thought if it has that much power in our lives. Because we cannot work with something we're not aware of. Awareness would seem to be the first issue. Being aware of thought. And yet, in my experience with working on, on my, myself and working with many, many people, most of us are most of the time not aware of thinking when it's happening. You must suspect that at this point. Yeah? <laughs> So that means we are pushed around in our lives constantly by this clinging, the fist with identification with thought, thinking, and emotion. And that the Buddha came with a message that was very simple. He said, you must uh, look at it closely, what's happening. And he laid out a very precise way that's been described this week by each of us in one way or another of how to do that. Very precise, right to the point, completely practical. practical. And the promise in the suttas of commitment and wholehearted participation in this practice is everlasting life. Buddha called it the realm of the deathless. 
the realm of the deathless. So you see, there is this garden and the curse is one way of looking at it. We fell into identification with thought. And then there's the message that the Buddha brought, which is there's a way out of it. It's possible to become free. That's tremendously good news. But you've also learned in these last few days that it ain't easy, this path. It isn't easy at all. What's required? We must develop the ability to identify thought as thought and feeling as feeling. In all my work as a psychiatrist, a therapist for 40 years, the thing that really brought people into work with me, well, first of all, was unhappiness and suffering. That's what pushes us to look for the way out, suffering. Pain is the teacher. But the characteristic most common was an inability to know the difference between thought and feeling, and therefore not know really which is which. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about uneducated, unsophisticated people. I'm talking about very sophisticated people working with themselves, laboring on some kind of path of awareness where the problem was not being able to know thinking is thinking and when it's happening. So when we leave here to go out into the conditioned world, that is going to be the work. And it won't be as easy as it is here because everything is conducive to our investigation here. The distractions were minimized. You're, you're leaving here and you're going to go back into your whole construction of avoidance. <laughs> you know, I, I talked before about how we avoid automatically the now, present time. And the present time is the, the time of awakening. It's the time of the deathless. It's the time of out of time. And thought diverts attention into the past, if we cling to it, and into the future. The fall from the garden is that, simply that. It's our inheritance. That metaphor is a perfect description of our condition. Poetically, tragically. And yet, there's a beauty to it all. There's this incredible, who could think this up? And who made this trip happen? What is it? Like what, the West keeps saying, what's going on here? We don't know anything. We don't know anything. How we got here, we don't know. Where we're going, we don't know. What we're supposed to do here, you know, there's no manual of instruction. There's the, that story, 
And we don't even know what anything is, really. You know, we think we know what this is. We give it name. We know what this is. We give it name, but we, do we really know what it is? No. So this practice is so available. Not knowing anything, what you, what's required of you is to observe scientifically what it is that's observable. And thought is observable, but it takes a lot of attention to know this is thinking, this is thinking, this is thinking. And then to remember it's irrelevant. You look closely, very rarely is there a thought that means anything. Yes? It's just blah, 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 blah. About me, 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 me. We're all like that. And we're going out into a world where it's very easy to slip back into the story. Very easy to slip back into the habits. And there will be all those other people pulling. And then there will be the freeway and the supermarket and the television and the technology and family. Yeah. <laughs> and hallelujah, right? It's life. It's life. But you came here seeking paradise, whether you knew it or not. When I went on a spiritual path, I was looking to be saved. That's what I wanted. I wanted to be lifted out of myself and plopped in paradise. And low in, that isn't how it happens. Is it? You know, we have to be attentive. We have to pay attention. We have to train our attention. From this guy, Ron Liefer. How can we sort out our neuroses when the mind is a wild, chaotic mess of fragmented thought? How can we work with our anger when we experience it as a deluge of highly charged, urgent impulses, all mixed in with fleeting bits of narrative, physical sensations, whispers of memory, rushes of fear, and the visceral press to act? That, that's your life, isn't it? <laughs> we can't. Every beginning meditator discovers very quickly that the mind has a mind of its own. No beginner sits down, says, peace, be still, and accomplishes enlightenment. It's enough at the start just to see, discover, and acknowledge the chatter. That's what I'm speaking about. That in itself is a great step towards self-awareness. Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche taught that the awareness of our confusion is the first step towards clarity. That's what I'm saying. And that awareness doesn't come 
with a box top. We have to practice. We have to practice. Over the years, I've noticed that most everyone who comes to a retreat, particularly the first time, and gets it, leaves saying, now I know. I'm going to practice this practice. When I go home, I'm going to keep this going. I'm going to keep this going. And you know how many do? Very few. Unless there is sangha, unless there is connection with a, a group of people who are also practicing, you need that just as you've needed each other here to do this incredible task that you have been accomplishing. Amazing what you've done. The courage that it has taken to come in here every day, hour after hour, and the, the determination and the forbearance. It's a miracle for me just to, to watch this happen, knowing how we are as people. You need this kind of support when you leave here in order to keep track of what it's doing you know, and to loosen the bonds of identification with concepts about who you are and who you think you are and how you think it is and you know all of it. And the story that we all bring with us all the time, the past. We're all walking along dragging suitcases, this whole string of suitcases back of us. You know, and this happened and that happened and this happened and now that's who I am. <laughs> Not true. All of that must go. You know, and it's so easy to say that. It's so easy to say it, throw it all overboard. But you know, it's getting rid of who you are in thought, who you think you are. Letting it go. Letting go of the clinging to your ideas about who you are. And coming instead to the immediate experience of the truth which you have been practicing doing. But over and over and over and over. And when you leave here, it's going to get hard to do that. I suggest that you, if you're serious about it, and I encourage you to be serious about it, because this, it, it, the work works. I promise you it works. Promise you. If you're serious about it, I would suggest that you have a place where you live that's set aside for your practice. Set up an altar. Have a corner that's for you. Put your cushion there. And have a time in the day when you go there and sit down. It's good to be disciplined because it slips away so quickly. You'll forget so quickly what you, you found here. It's just the way it is. Have your sacred place and your sacred time and go there and do it. And do it when you don't want to. That's the hard part. And very quickly, you won't want to. I went through years and years, I couldn't even have a cup of tea before I sat down. Because a cup of tea leads to a phone call, leads to a reading, a poem. And then that leads to writing one. And then pretty soon, you know, you, that's how it works, the story.
So respect yourself. Give yourself a chance to continue this practice of identifying thought as thought. That's really all, all you have to do. That's really all it is. And as soon as you have identified thought as thought, shift it to the body. Because here and now is the whole point of it. And sensations in the body and the breath occur now. Always, always now. And that's why we encourage it. attention there. From Mitch Albom's albums, Tuesdays with Maury. Learn to detach. Don't cling to things because everything is impermanent. Remember, he's dying. He's talking to this young man. He's sick. But detachment doesn't mean you don't let the experience penetrate you. On the contrary, you let it penetrate fully. That's how you're able to leave it. Hmm, important. Let it penetrate you fully. That's how you can leave it. Because you can't leave what you haven't known. You can't give up what you haven't accepted. Take any emotion, love for a woman or grief for a loved one or what I'm going through, fear and pain from a deadly illness. If you hold back on the emotions, if you don't allow yourself to go all the way through them, you can never get to being detached. You're too busy being afraid. Fear. The fear that you've been experiencing here has come entirely from within you. you know, and it's been significant, I'm sure, from time to time coming from within yourself. When you leave here, fear is going to be bombarding you from all other places and will remind you to be afraid. Our system is set up to remind you to be afraid. Read the news. Study the government. Look at the educational system. You're afraid of the pain. You're afraid of the grief. You're afraid of the vulnerability that love entails. But by throwing yourself into these emotions, by allowing yourself to dive in all the way over your head even, you experience them fully and completely. Ooh, I like that a lot. Dive in over your head. Drown. Drown in it. You know what pain is, you know what love is, you know what grief is, and only then can you say, all right, I have experienced that emotion. I recognize that emotion. Now I need to detach from that emotion for a moment. Beautiful story, by the way. Hmm. We're leaving the garden. It was known up front that we were going to leave the garden. You're probably eager to, right? 
Probably. No? It means a change. And you're very, so much more than you even know, I think, you're very open and altered by this week. You're vulnerable, you're sensitive more than usual, you're reactive to stimuli, you're wanting to protect the peace that you have discovered, and that makes you a little bit hyper-alert. This is a time, this is a time to be very slow and deliberate and cautious. Not too, though. When I left a retreat once, I was arrested for driving too slow on the freeway. (laughs) He thought I was stoned. (laughs) Well, I was. Yeah. Oh, be kind to yourself. Take care of yourself. You're in a very tender state. And knowing that is important. Okay? Make contact with others who understand. Find your Sangha. If you're real excited about this and you can't wait to get back and tell everybody, be careful. They don't want to hear it. (laughs) Mostly. There's a tendency, if you're really excited, to want to proselytize. (laughs) Instead of telling people about the Buddha, be the Buddha. I think I've made my point. This is a big transition, not to be minimized or trivialized. Be conscious. Take care of yourself. Stay in touch with the mystery. And the more you practice, understand that the more the mind and the heart opens, that's where love comes from. And that's the reason for the whole thing. Love comes from within and from the emptiness. The great emptiness. Love and compassion. And that's the gift you can bring to the world. Not your thinking, not cheerleading. You can bring that because you know about it more than when you came. Hafiz. I know the way you can get when you have not had a drink of love. Your face hardens. 
your sweet muscles cramp. Children become concerned about a strange look that appears in your eyes, which even begins to worry your own mirror and nose. Squirrels and birds sense your sadness and call an important conference in a tall tree. They decide which secret code to chant to help your mind and soul. There is that out there too. There is the support that comes to you in the magic of now. It's always present. Even angels fear that brand of madness that arrays itself against the world and throws sharp stones and spears into the innocent and into oneself. Oh, I know the way you can get if you've not been drinking love. You might rip apart every sentence your friends and teachers say, looking for hidden clauses. You might even weigh every word on a scale like a dead fish. You might pull out a ruler to measure from every angle in your darkness the beautiful dimensions of a heart you once trusted. I know the way you can get if you've not had a drink from love's hands. That's why all the great ones speak of the vital need to keep remembering God. So you will come to know and see him as being so playful and wanting, just wanting to help. And that is why Hafiz says, bring your cup near me, for I am a sweet old vagabond with an infinite leaking barrel of light and laughter and truth that the beloved has tied to my back. <sighs> Dear one, indeed, please bring your heart near me for all I care about is quenching your thirst for freedom. All a sane man can ever care about is giving love. And that's the advice from Grandpa today. I know that Anna and Wes and John and Tisha and I are so grateful for your effort, your hard work, 
and your goodwill. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.